0: Good morning, and happy, His Holiness, Dalai Lama's birthday. What a special day today. So we'll sit for a while in (laughs) silence, meditation, to settle our mind and body. So before we say the homage to Manjushri, let's take time in cultivating the merit field with Manjushri in the space above us. Seeing him as a personification of the Wisdom of all Buddhas put together. Of course, the wisdoms of all the Buddhas are integrated with all the other method aspects of the path as well, all of them having reached full culmination, but for special purpose here. We are emphasizing the wisdom part of it and seeing the Manjushri to be the personification of it, integrated with all the other aspects of the Buddha's qualities, such as infinite love, compassion, bodhicitta, all the perfections. In full consummate, blujami, Be reminded of the role and place of wisdom in our quest for lasting happiness, freedom, from the clutches of afflictions in their subtle traces, both for ourselves and others. How crucial it is to develop Wisdom in general, more particularly, wisdom into the ultimate nature of reality, to the devil, of seeing it directly, and then not just stopping there, even developing it further, such power that it can address the subtleness of the subtleness, afflictions and the traces of them thus clearing the way to full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. Think of ourselves being surrounded by fellow sentient beings, all in human forms, yet undergoing their own respecting sufferings and predicaments in samsara in general, and in their own respective realms of existence, particularly those belonging to the lower realms. But even in the case of those belonging temporarily in the higher realms, the seemingly respite is just a short-lived one, and this until. One has several afflictions approaching it, from the depth of their ignorance. These seemingly comforts are just temporary ones, only to lead to more suffering. I mean, in the case of not being able to identify the root of the sufferings, and even if one has identified them, if one fails to integrate them, practice them, internalize them, the prospect of ever getting out of samsara is very bleak almost equal to impossible. And in the case of hearts, Bodhisattva Arya beings, although they have attained freedom on the captivity, of the afflictions and the actions induced by them, and thus read to remember driven by afflictions into any subsidiary existence. Nonetheless, they still have cognitive obscurations to clear in their way of becoming fully awakened. So think of the array of sentient beings, the range of sentient beings, along these lines of limitations, predicaments that befall them and feel very inspired, encouraged to pursue the path to full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. With these attitudes in the background, let's say the homage to Manjushri together. Let's sit for a while in this mental mode of bodhisattva. Aspiring to attain full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. Once again, think of our own situation in the hands of afflictions and actions induced by them. thinking of how unbearable it is and the prospect of continuing in this is even worse. Generate a deep felt sense that one needs to free oneself from this, one needs to get out of this. And thinking of the fact that all the other sentient beings are no different in this condition. How at the term we all are the same in wanting happiness and not suffering. Yet this is our shared condition of losing complete control to the afflictions and actions induced by them. The two afflictions, all rooted, grounded in, affl- in ignorance, completely confused, not even that, completely misconstruing the reality. How just the starting point is so skewed. What better prospect can we expect from such a situation? And at the same time, we depend on each other just about for everything. Throughout our existence in samsara, and for much more longer time, so long as we are in samsara, we have no choice but to depend on fellow sentient beings, irrespective of how confused we may be within that Condition of confusion, we nonetheless have to and depend, have to depend on each other and to extend helping hands directly or indirectly to each other, even at the cost of each other's lives. Yet, being steeped in ignorance, none of those helps go very far in really solving the problem. If it all just serves as a temporary comfort, temporary fix, but never fixing the actual problem. If this were to continue, there would be no chance, no time, we would ever get
1: out of this mess.
0: taking full advantage of our special privilege of having had this precious human rebirth, facilitated with all the conditions conducive for practicing Dharma. taking on our interest in Dharma, in our awakening, that yes, something needs to be done. We take this opportunity in expanding our sense of concern, care to all sentient beings. In the midst of that, by the blessing of Manjushri, all the Buddhas, the inspirations, we at least have generated interest in Dharma, have awakened to this fact of our mess. Maybe for the first time ever. We cannot let this slip by. Rather, we must feel all determined to make the most of this so that we would continue to be as privileged in not just practicing the Buddha the Dharma, but even continuing from where we had left in the previous lives and eventually growing, progressing along the path to full awakening. On the basis of such a privileged birth as human beings with all these facilities, there is a hope. We actually begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel, If we really manage to make the most of this time, however long, short, we may have of it. Nonetheless, starting from here and now, if we look inside, make the needed changes within by taking control of our own Attitudes, emotions, outlook, and if we persist in it, integrate it in our meditation and the practices, it's but natural for these habits, insights, attitudes to grow further and further. Among all the other aspects of practices that we need to understand, reflect on, and integrate within our mind, one of them, rather very crucial one, is wisdom. both conventional and ultimate wisdom. More particularly, the wisdom of understanding the ultimate nature of reality. Of course, grounded on our wisdom of the conventional realities. But ultimately, it is such a wisdom of understanding the ultimate nature of reality. That true wisdom developed to the level of full equipoise, direct insight into it, that can start to have the force, power required to make a difference, to chip our store of afflictions and ignorance. Towards that end, We are going to sit through the session and share, share the insights that Shanti Deva brings in this masterpiece, the product of his own several decades, maybe centuries, lifetimes of practice. And that too, for the sake of all sentient beings, by attaining all awakening.
1: Okay,
0: let's see if we can do more than one stanza today. I promise it will not be less than a stanza. Can you hear? Okay, I'll try to speak louder also. Today I have some energy. I was storing it, but I can use it. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. I can project. Today is definitely His Holiness's birthday day. Whoa, light up! perk hmm. up! He's <laughs> amazed by this day. His Holiness has come into this world and has... And we are here walking on the globe, together with Holiness, and then get to not just witness, but also partake of His enlightened activities. So once again, rejoicing this day. So, To review a little bit, one thing that... I'll try to bring in things, little by little, (laughs) but things that I needed to bring in, I should bring in up. I think I may have brought it up last time, something about selflessness of phenomena. So selflessness of phenomena and selflessness of person, it's very crucial here. In the very first stanza, when the author says, the sage taught, now I'm reading my edition, okay? The sage taught all these branches of teachings for the sake of the wisdom, not just a wisdom, the wisdom. Therefore, those who wish to pacify the sufferings of self and others, or rather, therefore, those who wish to pacify both the sufferings, should generate the wisdom. So here the wisdom, specifically in line with what Shantideva has been working on through these past eight chapters, is the wisdom of understanding, specifically the selflessness of phenomena. Selflessness of person, selflessness of phenomena. In one way, selflessness of phenomena or selflessness of person means the emptiness of phenomena, emptiness of person. But then there is a reason for calling this selflessness of person, selflessness of phenomena, as opposed to selflessness of person, because there is a notion, an understanding of selflessness of person apart from the emptiness of person. So there is a notion of there is a separate notion of selflessness of person, then the emptiness of person, and this notion, this other notion of selflessness of person, is something that is shared by all the tenets, all the tenets within Buddhism, all the tenet systems, including Prasangika Madhyamika, except. What, when they mean by the subtle selflessness of a person, is different than this notion of selflessness of a person shared by all the rest of them. And to make a point of this, what you call more uh, subtle selflessness of a person, I, could, I think we could say they make this additional they make this they make the case of this additional self additional insight called selflessness of pers- selflessness of phenomena. Because in when we call something the selflessness of phenomena, that would be very unique and uncommon with the rest of the tenets. So when he say the sage taught all these branches of teachings for the sake of the wisdom, the wisdom of understanding. Of course, not just understanding, of it has to be developed further, but beginning with the understanding of the selfness of phenomena. And therefore, those who wish to pacify the, both the sufferings, the suffering of self and others, should generate the wisdom. So this selflessness of phenomena is something that is necessary, indispensable to be cultivated, if one wants to be freed from suffering. Which means, if one wants to address the ignorance that's at the root of afflictions leading to the contaminated, polluted karma leading to suffering, if one wants to address that ignorance one has to there is no other way but to understand or start from understanding and developing this wisdom of under this wisdom into the selflessness of phenomena so right there it's the author is bringing in this this understanding, or this uh, this position, this position that even if one is pursuing one's own self-liberation, there's no way one can... there's no way one can... uh, there's no way one can not understand the wisdom not understand the selflessness of phenomena on top of understanding what they understand as the selflessness of person so in addition to their notion their their the shared notion of selflessness of phenomena in selflessness of person this selflessness of phenomena as understood by the prasangika madhyamikas is essential So, this is saying that even for Shravakas, Prateka Buddhas, those pursuing that path, even for them also, getting rid of the ignorance, thereby succeeding in getting rid of the suffering, is only possible by understanding the wisdom, understanding the selflessness of phenomena. And those who Striving to attain full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings, thereby not just being content with eliminating the suffering, eliminating their ignorance, but even further eliminating the subtle stasis of ignorance. For them, it goes without saying that they need to understand the substance of the phenomena. So then, when we speak of selflessness of phenomena, then this self, the notion of self takes a different meaning. Up until now, if we could say, up until now, or at least in the shared understanding of the lower tenets, when they speak of selflessness of person, when they speak only of selflessness of person, not selflessness of phenomena, that notion of self that needs to be negated has something necessarily to do with personhood, has something necessarily to do with the notion of personhood. So it is always connected with the person. So that is the notion of the notion of how the person exists in relation to its aggregates. And there when we project this exactly the notion that this self exists independence on the aggregates yet with a vantage point of being the controller being in control among the aggregates to be controlled by it and seeing the self though not as permanent or independent or partless not that in not, not in that gross picture but nonetheless seeing that as impermanent dependent with parts, but nonetheless enjoying some special status over the aggregates in being the the controller and the aggregates being the controlled, to the extent of almost suggesting that this I can be identified without having to depend on identifying the aggregates. So, cut in short, this notion of self-sufficient Substantial self selfhood is what is being attacked, and and the lack of which is being spoken of when we speak of the selflessness of person in the as understood uh, by the lower tenets. Of course, that is also shared by the prasangika Madhyamikas, but they do not say that is the only way. That is the only notion of selflessness of person or self of person. So so unlike this notion of selflessness or self-hood of person, which surrounds around the notion of personhood in relation to the aggregates, when we speak of selflessness of phenomena, we are now taking the notion of selfhood a notch up by identifying, by making it, by making it, uh, by making it uh, equivalent to a notion of identity, irrespective of whether something is something is person or not. Everything has an identity. Now, how we see the identity of that thing or person is being then addressed. And so this goes a little deeper, and also is more uh, what do you call universal. So when we speak of selflessness of phenomena, selflessness of cup, selflessness of, we're not saying that this cup doesn't have has a self as in person, but the the cup doesn't has an identity as self would or an identity, self-identity, or an identity uh which is which is uh inherent in it. It's rather whatever its identity it whatever its identity is, it's totally, totally true and true borrowed identity and on the basis of that borrowed identity it is capable of doing its unique functions, operations and thus the dependency all of those are are possible on the basis of this just thoroughly through and through borrowed identity and thus not the single thing outside of the person as well as in within the person there is not a single thing, single person single phenomena, that has any inherent ins- intrinsic self-enclosed independent identity of its own. So that lack of a exaggerated identity of a phenomena can that notion can also be applied to a person without having to without having to confine it to a sense of personhood by saying that the person, irrespective of whether we speak of its personhood or not, its very identity is a thoroughly borrowed thing. And thus, the selflessness or the identitylessness of a person goes a little deeper, a step deeper, than in the case of the selflessness of notion, selflessness of person shared by the rest of the tenets. So, I think I remember very clearly, Venerable, reminding us when we speak of these four tenets, they are not to be seen something out there and saying, This is this, this is they, they do not agree, they do not agree, they agree on this part. But rather, one has to kind of look inside and see what part of the tenet the position one is sharing. And it's quite interesting to see sometimes that we kind of move shift from one position to the other in a day's time. Like take our understanding of emptiness. When we think of emptiness, it seems like, okay, it's tending towards Prasankika. but then when we realize that that tends to delete things, that tends to take away things from us, then we begin to understand that, yes, that's not going on the right track, I need to back off and then at at least affirm the existence of phenomena. And when we affirm the phenomena, we kind of lose hold on them being lacking inherent existence. So that's where we are swinging back and forth between what we might call prasangika position to that of the rest of the tenet holders. Who knows, depending on how grossly we hold on to their identity, to support their functionality, operationality, their existence, we tend to go to the extreme other extreme of projecting some kind of a self-enclosed identity, inherent nature in them. And that's when we fall into any of the any of the tenets, depending on how gross that projection is. It could even fall into the vaibhashikas or if. If we are kind of a little more nuanced in how much we are allowing for to have some kind of identity for us to support the functionality, then we could be lucky to fall with Chitamatra or the Sautantra Kamadamika. So it's very uh, important to look at the tenet systems in that respect and work uh, on oneself okay that's it that should be that's it but this wisdom is not that easy to to gain to acquire within us it has several layers of understanding several layers of meaning that needs to be that needs to be tackled understood sorted through, to arrive at the final understanding in the case of the S, as as uh, presented by the Prasangika Madhemikas. Just to give a little uh, background, these four tenets, they all, at least from the Buddhist perspective, they all have their sources in the Buddha's teachings. The Sautantrika and the the Vaibhashika and the Sautantrika, they traced their teachings, their philosophy, their understanding or presentation of the system of Buddha-Dharma to the first turning of the wheel. Where Buddha didn't touch on whether things have intrinsic existence or not, he just said there are these four truths. There are these four truths. There is suffering that needs to be identified. There's cause to the suffering in the form of afflictions. And there is this possibility of severing or eliminating the afflictions and arrive at cessation. And that can happen through the practice of the paths. Now, in terms of whether these paths are truly existent or not, He didn't necessarily explicitly touch on them. So it's like, here, these gadgets here, work on these new one gadgets, so, to get to deal with your suffering. <laughs> and nece- not necessarily warning them, that don't grasp at them, just deal with them in the way you do with everything that you do. Except these are new things to kind of focus on, and then see whether they make a difference. Then came the second teaching, second, second uh, turning of the wheel, at least from the Mahayana perspective. When Buddha taught the, the the cycles of perfection of wisdom sutras, where he almost seemed like negating everything that he said in the first teaching. This no this, no this, no this, no this. Is there anything? No. Even nothing is not there. <laughs> right? Everything is negative. So those who were smart and for whom Buddha had kind of really aimed these teachings, they were kind of going, ah, ah, ah like they're kind of nodding. Ah. But there are many who were kind of confused. What? What's going on here? He seemed to affirm so many things in the first teaching, but now he's negating everything, deleting everything. <laughs> so, so as part of this sutra, there was one master Dandavyang I don't know its its Sanskrit name. Someone who knew, who understood the qualms of others who were kind of having trouble, so he volunteered to raise his their questions to the Buddha on their behalf. You said this, you said this. Buddhas cannot have contradictions, but there is an apparent contradiction here. What is going on? <laughs> then Buddha said, Okay, yes, yes. Then he taught the third teaching, where is, st- at least in the eyes of those who had difficulty understanding the second one. After having heard the first teaching, those who are having difficulties understanding the second one and kind of kind of harmonizing the two. Uh, for them, Buddha, Buddha presented, at least in their eyes, a, a middle way. Saying, when I say things are, I meant these things. When I say things aren't, I meant these things. So then he kind of sorted them out for them. And so, thus from them came the position of the citta-matras. And during the second one came the position of the madhyamikas. So all of the four tenets I accounted for there in the very source of Buddha's teaching. Mm-hmm. And then it may have gotten expanded and like that. So that's one thing to understand, very important. Another thing is to think that, yes, Buddha had a strategy in presenting this, and 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 thus kind of uh, bank on this and try to kind of uh, find out uh, What's, uh, what's, what's the meaning, what's the benefit, uh, purpose behind presenting this in this way. And then, as I have been sh- mentioning, sharing, uh, uh, throughout these years, is that that when we look at these four tenets, I mean, one could run one particular topic through them and then see it being refined. It's so interesting. Even as simple or as universal as the nature of mind, you can run it through the four tennis system. It's almost like we can, we can develop an app and then hold something and then run it through and then see the refinement going. <laughs> it's like that. Particularly the notion of selflessness or self If you run through that, tenet systems, you will find refinement. And you will see how they are all aimed at, uh, kind of uh, aimed at uh, refining our understanding, so that we could arrive at the prasangika madhyamika level. Where, I said last time, the prasangika, whatever prasangika madhyamika upholds is considered to be true. That's the challenge to prove to oneself, or to question. <laughs> And then, whatever Tantra brings on top of that is in addition, not in contradiction, but in addition to what the Prasangigas bring. But then, until prasangika, all the rest has faults, including chitta matras, And faults, more particularly along the line of what they understand to be the real, the ultimate nature of things. They've all call it, this is ultimate nature, this is ultimate nature. Everyone would have their own take of ultimate nature, but Uh, whether they really uh, stand to that level or not, is to be tested. They do not. So, and among all these topics uh, that go through this uh, refinement through these, in the hands of these Four Tenet Systems, uh, the main thing is the understanding of the reality, understanding of the ultimate nature of reality. Which would be the only entity uh, the only tool to to, to deal with the uh, root of afflictions, to deal with ignorance. When it comes to really kind of a one-to-one encounter, it's that understanding of the ultimate nature. And thus, in this uh, chapter, it is. Among all other uh, positions uh it's mainly this their take of that their take of what is ultimate reality or their take of completely uh what you call misconstrued notion of uh of of how things exist that's the main theme and then uh related with them uh, the other topics will be brought up and discussed and then put to test. So here it is the selflessness of phenomena, selflessness of person in its subtle nature, on the basis of the selflessness of person at a grosser level, that is understood and shared by the rest of the tenant holders and there, they are not mistaken, but that doesn't go far enough. It only, uh, it only serves as a, as a second. What you, it only serves as a gross, grosser understanding of the selflessness of person, only able to deal with the afflictions only so far, but not in approaching it. So in the first stanza, the Buddha, or the Shishantideva makes the point that pursuing the understanding of the emptiness of phenomena and person, both of them, at the subtlest level, is must. Because unless and until one gets hold of that, the ignorance cannot be eliminated and particularly those who are pursuing the bodhisattva path, to awaken to the full state of Buddhahood, Not only ignorance, but even the subtle stains of it needs to be eliminated, and for that, no other means but this wisdom of understanding selflessness of phenomena is necessary. So when we say selflessness of phenomena, In the context of selflessness, within this division of selflessness of phenomena and selflessness of person, person, between the two, they are supposed to cover all of the phenomena. So person, things related to person or person, I as the basis of the mind as the basis to establish the selflessness is included within the selflessness of person. All the rest of the phenomena are included in the selflessness of phenomena. So between the two, everything is covered, which is another way of saying that everything whatsoever, without exception, without exception, any of those belonging to the samsaric realm, all those belonging to the nirvana realm, all of them, without exception, lacks intrinsic existence, lacks inherent existence in this subtlest form. But it is not that easy to understand, not that easy to even actually identify within ourselves. To see anything wrong with that kind of notion is one thing. First and foremost, one has to identify that there's, there is such a notion within us. That's another thing. And then once we identify it, to see that there is something wrong with it is another step. And then the third one is that, that there can be something to be, that there can be something done with them is the third one and then actually internalizing the practice and react actually executing or actually setting into motion that process of mitigating it is the actual process so the so in this regard to to set into motion the process of identifying it, seeing something wrong with it, and then something that needs to be done, and actually getting to do something to actually eliminate it or start the process of eliminating it. This is first and foremost, the need of understanding, of getting our hold on this understanding of the true truths. And again, truth to something that is dealt with in all these tenet systems in their own respective ways, pertinent to their level of understanding of how things are like that. But nonetheless, at the core of this topic lies what their position is with regard to whether things have intrinsic inherent existence or not. That's the very basis for this discussion back and forth and dialogue back back and forth. Just to give a side idea at the vaibhashika although it will be, it will come again and again, but to put it within this context may be easier at the vipassical level. Of course, there are so many areas they differ with other tenet systems. But there are many, as many, or even more that they agree. As I said yesterday, uh, the the previous session, it's not that on everything, the four tenets differ. There are many that they share, and they serve as the basis for the next understanding or next development. And then, whatever they disagree on, Those are picked at and refined as we move up the ladder. Many of the points of disagreements are mere are things that they are merely conceptually constructed or philosophical stipulations. Of course, not just for the sake of them, for the purpose of serving some area of the philosophy to kind of maintain a complete overview of how things are and what are the ways to move along the path, etc. But nonetheless falling within this realm of mere philosophical speculations. And those are being pointed out and then kind of ruled uh, out or negated. But one thing among many things that they disagree, one is whether or not there is intrinsic existence. So in the case of the Vaibhashaka and Sautantrika, they are 100 percent sure that things have an independent existence of their own. They cannot think of any other way. Any other way would would amount to uh, denigrating or would amount to eliminating, annihilating the existence of the other phenomena, all the phenomena. So on the Vibhashika and, Vibhashika and Sautantrika level, the lowest two, they fully stand for everything, everything that exists to have an inherent existence. In the case of the Vaibhashika, they, uh, in the case of, in the case of Vibhashika and Sautantrika, in the case of these two lower tenets, they even go to the extent of saying that everything has to have some kind of an objective starting point, reference point, building block outside of the mind for then, for, for, for then, uh, build bigger blocks or bigger structures on them. They have to be that consciousness. They say at the consciousness at this very, very ultimate level has an indivisible, partless, indivisible consciousness, event, an event of consciousness. And that serves as the basis by which then uh, longer and longer, temporally longer and longer instances of consciousness can happen more and more sophisticated consciousness can happen. But nonetheless, ultimately there has to be an objectively existing partless, if you will, consciousness atom <laughs> uh, to begin with. And so is this case with physical things. This they speak of indivisible, partless. In present terms it could be even subtler than atom. But nonetheless they say there has to be. To that extent they go to uh advocate inherent existence. Now when it comes to Chitramatra, Chitramatra say no, let alone there be any kind of a objectively existing, partless, indivisible building block or reference point to begin with. There's not even external thing, such thing as external thing. Things external to mind, there is no such thing. Everything is mentally projected. Mind does exist, and all the rest are mental projections. Nothing outside of mind exists, let alone anything that has a objective, building an objective in, in this indivisible, heartless uh, state of existence. Let alone that, there's no such thing as external phenomena external to the mind, everything is mental projection. But mind does exist, and exists truly, exists inherently. So it goes to another extent. Then comes Paramadhyamika, but within that, before prasangika Madhyamika, the South comes to the rescue, saying, no, 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 not to that extreme. Let it be brought to the middle here. Let's say, yes, mind do exist, phenomena do exist, external phenomena exist, Mind do exist, but not external phenomena to the extent of having a ultimately traceable, uh, objectively existing, partless building block. Not to that extent. Things are dependently related, but nonetheless they are external things, and mind also. Both of them have some level of dependency on others, yet at the same time they enjoy some level of independence. So it is 50-50. So it, it it can be appealing to people at different at different steps. The South Antrika and the 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 stand is something that every just about all of the common people will, ordinary people will understand. Yes, yes, there is there somebody did it to me. Yes, the the the, the harmful harming person is out there. The harm is out there. All is very concrete. But then there are others who are a little sophisticated and saying, no, particularly things like qualities, values, to us are purely mental. And then they extend it by saying, oh, not just values are mental, even what I see of other things are mental. They are private, personal. They would go like that. What I see, what I see, even, even in the case of this pencil or so, The pencil that I see, you don't see. What you see, I don't see. Apart from that, there is no pencil, right? There is pencil if you don't investigate, but the pencil I see, you cannot see. You cannot get into my head and see the pencil I see. And and it becomes much more gross, much more evident when we talk of values. This is good, this is bad, or this is totally subjective, right? Uh, So there are certain... Uh, what do you call foundations for such such uh, positions to be held it's not just out of a the believe they hold this position and it kind of makes case for it but there is some value but they need to be refined uh, and understood and brought more in sync closer and closer to the reality so in the case of this southga mademica they say it's half and half half and half is quite a, Quite appealing, also. When you, say, when you say somebody is a teacher, just we cannot appoint anyone to be a teacher, and they become teacher. No, they has to have some quality. But again, even if people have qualities, they do not necessarily get to be chosen as teachers. So many other considerations go into the process, and they some get picked up, others don't, and they end up not being teacher. The other having teacher, being becoming teacher, based on some qualities, some qualities from their side, some. Some biases from this side, <laughs> and and through together makes them the teacher. Likewise with many things, so they say that. Now the Prasangika Madhymika says this: that all of you are wrong. vaibhashika Sautantrika, <laughs> no question, totally wrong, saying that things have intrinsic existence. No, Citramatra, you're going to an extreme in both the cases completely deny external existence, external phenomena, saying nothing there is outside of the mind, that's one extreme. And then saying the mind has a true existence of itself, that's another extreme. Then for the Sautantra Madhami, Parasanga Madhami says, Yes, you're, you're getting there, not quite there. <laughs> you're getting there, not quite there. Just the fact that you're just still holding on to some kind of intrinsicality. There you need to work on. You brought the mind, you helped the citta matras, bringing the mind to the center. That's quite good. Uh, But at the same time, you project, you still keep some objectivity to the mind, as well as to all the rest of the things. And that needs to be let go of. If you fear that letting that go, would then then you lose all of the phenomena, that's an unfounded fear. I can tell you, <laughs> has say that, but it's difficult; they cannot uh, talk them into it easily. Yeah. So, so the has come to a point of saying, objectivity-wise, not a single iota exists of objectivity. Yet at the same time, within that, within that uh, absence of objectivity, all the functionalities can be perfectly situated. It's not that everything will be hodgepodge, or that everything will be just however you project. No, everything is merely projected with no intrinsic existence. Yet within that projection, there is some order of operationality, functionality. So kind of living not the slightest iota of any objectivity, yet at the same time not completely falling to the extreme of denying the existence of the thing uh, altogether. And thus being able to situate, perfectly situate the fact of their functionality, operationality, their uniqueness, yeah. Within this within this realm of their being thoroughly dependent with not the slightest iota of any intrinsic existence. And why make a big fuss of all of this? Because ultimately, yeah, ultimately. Afflictions still come. So long as there is some projection of objectivity, afflictions will come. They will never be eliminated. So it's all connected with our prospect of joy and happiness, because all rooted in the afflictions, they turn into the ignorance. And that ignorance, at the very subtlest level, is the ignorance which holds on to some, which holds on to any amount of, as little as it may be, any amount of objectivity, so long as that grasping is there. So long as there is grasping, it is not view, right? There is no full understanding of the ultimate reality. And what would be the cost of that? One would still be subjected to afflictions. Afflictions, however much undermined they may be, they can never be uprooted, so long as there is this grasping at inherent existence, however subtle it may be. But nonetheless, if it is there, even if a very subtle amount of it, that's enough. So that's the reason why the whole uh, discussion is about. Okay, so in that respect, understanding conventional and ultimate reality is very important. And last time we talked about conventional and ultimate reality. Here, this is being talked from the prasangika Gambadhyamika point of view. And all the objections to it will be the positions from the lower tenets that it will tackle. So, from the Prasangika Madhemika point of view, one way of understanding or situating the conventional and ultimate reality would be to take two model consciousness to cast them. Two model consciousness. One, on the one hand, although there can be so many consciousnesses, we are talking of only two model consciousness. One is grasping at inherent existence the other is the wisdom understanding emptiness directly so based on this they make the case they make the they make the presentation of two truths that encompasses all the phenomena anything that only appears now let's see anything that only appears to a grasping at inherent existence anything that is existing but is capable of appearing only in the face of grasping at inherent existence is conventional truth, is a dis- deceptive truth. Because it is truth only in the hand, only in the eyes of a deceptive mind. The grasping at inherent existence is a deceptive mind, not just deceptive, thoroughly deceptive, completely saturated in the deception mind. So a truth that is capable of appearing only in the face of only in the face of grasping the inherent existence is conventional truth, or is rather deceptive truth. All the rest, now nothing else is left except for emptiness. In the in the sense, in the from the point of the prasangika mathematics, we could say emptiness and and or and or cessation. Only that remains, and that those two or the, that 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 thing. That one thing, emptiness, is one thing that can appear, that can appear to a grasping at inner existence. Take the case of a grasping, a grasping mind that grasps at emptiness as being truly existent. But, I said earlier, things that appear only to of these two models of consciousness things that appear only to the grasping of inherent existence is deceptive truth but this emptiness does appear there but doesn't only appear to it it also appears to the wisdom understanding emptiness in that direct way so all that is left from that big bunch of deceptive truth is just emptiness and or Cessation from the prasangika madhyamika point of view. Only those two things are left, or that, that one thing is left from the from the from the, from the for whole phenomena, and that is ultimate truth because it is the one that is able to show itself, show its face, show itself up in the face of an ultimate wisdom. Right. So so it so this definition is in that line. In the second stanza, ultimate is not the object of mind. The mind is, we could even say the mind is spoken of as the conventional truth, or we could say the mind is conventional truth. So the reason why I I opted to leave, take away these insertions in the original translation is because because the way it is written in the original text and translated into Tibetan was the ground for so many misunderstandings, even to the point of saying ultimate nature is not an object of mind. Everything that is seen by mind is conventional truth, and that ultimate ultimate truth even doesn't exist, because it is not the object of any mind. But if you insert these, direct, dualistic, all of these, as you find in your original translation, then it takes away all of those misinterpretations that are part and parcel of the existing commentaries, which comment on how people have mistaken these into this and this, and have even gone to the uh, length of rejecting them. The ultimate is not the object of mind, which means ultimate is not the object just of the deceptive mind. The deceptive mind is spoken of as the conventional truth. That which is the object of this deceptive mind, that which is the only object of deceptive mind, is the conventional truth. So I think, uh, yeah, Things will not be that clear right away. <laughs> if they are not, if they are if they are clear, good. I'm I'm reminded of our Pis, uh, Posada sets. If they are clear, good. If not, still work on them. <laughs> Two, three times, even four, five, six times. <laughs> okay, that's where we left last time. <laughs> Now third and fourth, here it says in light of that, what does it what does it suggest if you say in light of that, in light of what in light of the two truths? I think we can even do without that also. in the Tibetan it's tela. Tela. Tela is, tela is just a filler. It just takes a space. It doesn't mean anything. Tela, jikten. The Tibetan term jikten, for which it is translated as world, it is, although when we say world of people means just the people, right? Or does it mean just the people or something else in English? The world of people. Is it just the people or something else more than the people? Anyway, the reason why I am asking here, asking this, is the Tibetan term jigten, which is translated as world here. In the in the way Geshe has commented, it means nothing but the people. So it is saying beings beings are seen to be of two types. Beings are of two types. Yogis and non-yogis. So in light of that, unless it doesn't do as much, then it could be kept there. Otherwise, if it's connected to one thing or the other going above, then it is better off taken away because it's not in the Tibetan. And also here what we are making sense of is the beings could be beings could be gen- generally divided into two. Yogis and non-yogis. Although the Tibetan term is phelpa, which is ordinary. Yogis and ordinary. Yogis and common people. So why this is being spoken of here is saying that understanding or developing this wisdom, for, this, for developing this wisdom, understanding the true truths is very essential. But when it comes to true truths, beings can be divided into two categories in regard to where they are on this. So beings kind of form into two categories, yogis and non-yogis, yogis yogis and ordinaries. Now here, Yasabche, I'm drawing mainly from Yasabche's commentary, and also from the commentary by uh, this, I think, 17th, 18th century master called Dupin which is a commentary that His Holiness recommends a lot. And uh, I see some differences between the two. Some are very helpful. So so let me first put it simply, in the simpler way. The beings are of two types, yogis and non-yogis. Now since we are dealing with the two two truths, yogis the, the, the notion of yogis and the non-yogis have to kind of bear on that. So doing doing so, what yogis stand for, explicitly yogis here stand for someone who have who has a direct perception of emptiness, who has the wisdom of equipos, supported by the facilities of Shamatha and Vipassana. Uh, so a person who has this immersive wisdom into emptiness with the facilities of shamatha and Vipassana supporting it. So basically, someone in the equipoise the, is the yogi. And from then above, you could call, once you have gained it, then it is not lost. So from the path of seeing onward. And the common people are? yeah but here the common people are common people are not quiet and then okay let me say that so the since the yogi explicitly means the Arya, who has this immersive wisdom into emptiness in association with that associated with that are those who may have not yet attained there but have developed developed the wisdom of hearing into emptiness, wisdom of reflection into the emptiness. Wisdom at the level of the path of preparation into emptiness. Those would be associated with yogis. The explicit, explicit member will be aryas. Associated with them will be those who are on the path of becoming aryas, uh, who have developed that wisdom, who has that wisdom, either at the hearing level or at the reflection level, contemplation level but nonetheless still conceptual, non, not non-conceptual. And then in the common people, common people or the ordinary people here are those who completely has a, what do you call, twisted understanding of what how things exist. So here, simply put, we could say the Buddhist realists. Not just Buddhists; they do not have to be Buddhists. Even <laughs> those who those who grasp at inherent existence; those are not just confined to Buddhists. <laughs> so, even animals have that. <laughs> but here, mainly, mainly those who are informed by tenets and has this uh, deliberate uh, position, deliberate opinion about how things exist. And they, through their deliberation, through their uh, philosophizing, they advocate that things have intrinsic existence. So those are all philosophically informed, tenet informed. But then those are the main members of this category. But associated with this are those who are less informed, less sophisticated, even including very common people who have no concern whatsoever about thinking any further than their day-to-day life or this just this, this life. So uninformed by philosophies could also in, be included here. So so that includes everyone in terms of the beings. In the in the translations, usually people call this so-called common people, at least the most uh, prominent ones here, as realists. But realist it's just a borrowed term from Western philosophy. It has to be really taken with a pinch of salt. Yes, because it is such a elastic term, it could be stretched to cover this and this and this. But basically what this is, is, those philosophically informed ones who, out of their philosophy, thinking, meaning, they say that things ought to have independent existence of their own. Things ought to have independent existence. things ought to have objective reality of its own. And then to be more specific within the Buddhist context, within the Buddhist context, it would be true to those who uphold true existence. Again, the term true existence is quite misleading. It's almost suggesting that things do not exist or they exist only falsely. If they exist falsely, that means they do not exist. It's quite misleading. Yeah, uh, but those who are informed with the Buddhist philosophy, we make this distinction between true existence, true existence, ultimate existence. Yang tak berubah, Yang tak berubah, Yeah, perfect existence. Yeah, perfect existence. Yeah, those could be put together. And then the rest three Int- intrinsic existence, uh, inherent existence, existing on its own. Rangshinki tuba? Natural. Natural existence. Rangunyutubha, objective existence, inherent existence, Rangshin Ngoinjitubha, inherent existence. Those could be put in another category. And there's a difference made between the two. So I brought it up, I'll again bring it up again. So, But for now, the so-called six, six, the so-called Usually, it comes in six, the so-called, yeah, six ways of existing, which, in the eyes of Prasangika Madhyamika, they all mean the same thing. But in the eyes of others, including the sautantika Madhyamika, Madhyamika, those six have to be divided up into two groups, and they, one can deny one, but accept the other. So, on that basis, the so-called realist or the so-called common people, at least the prominent ones, are those who advocate true existence, which is a form of objective existence, but not quite subtle objective existence. Anyway, uh, for now, it's good to see, for now, it's good to uh, think of The yogis, as those who have gotten emptiness right, not just right, but who has understood it even directly, associated with those are those who are buying into that position and have even developed wisdom, but not quite to the level of non-conceptual understanding. And in the fold of the common people, all that advocates, Philosophically informed beings who, through their think, thinking, philosophizing, and uh, deliberate uh, contemplation, come to the position that yes, things cannot but have true existence. And then associated with them are those who may not have even a position on this, or who have not even given thought on this. They all come into the common people. So that's laying the stage for this discussion. But I, as I said, many of the translations, even including here, I think they use the term realists, but that's uh, uh, only a temporary uh, kind of label to hold on to, but not so thoroughly. Let's push the last two lines also. And it says, regarding that, Again, in the Tibetan, it, it says Tela, but His Holiness recommends to say it, to, to, to write it, to, to understand it as Tele. Tele. It's Tele. Tele means having made this division of beings into these two categories, out of them, from them. Out of them, from them, what happens? The world of common people is undermined by the world of the yogis. And what about the yogis? Through their differences in their intelligence, the yogis too are undermined by progressively higher ones. So again, the views of yogi, views of that could be taken away because we are already dealing with beings, the common people and the yogis. So as per His Holiness' a recommendation, yeah, part of the sources that I'm coming up with is uh, listening to His Holiness's teaching. There, he even takes liberty in suggesting certain improvement in the translation. Some tweaks here and there, but makes big difference. Which one? No. lasale, yeah. In the Tibetan it says, Tela. All you do is just add sa, after le, which means from that or out of that. Out of that, the common people are in the undermined by the world of the yogis or beings of the or, or you could say the world of the yogis or the yogis. And whatever the yogis, even they are not spared <laughs> even they are not spared of this uh, Among them, due to through their differences in intelligence, yogis too are undermined by progressively higher ones. So what it is saying is, when it comes to the true truths, there's a big difference between how the yogis understand and the common people understand. Within the common people also, within the common people also you will find a whole range of where they lie, though within that canopy, within that, yeah, within that fold of uh, upholding true existence. Nonetheless, they differ their slight in their slight, uh, in, 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 in their, uh, slight uh, what you call substitution slight differences. And then among the yogis also among the yogis when we speak of the main yogis here, those means the Arya beings, not that they differ on their basic basic position. But they differ in terms of how much they have developed, how much they have advanced in developing that wisdom, together with uh, the qualities that they acquired along the path. And thus, they, and thus they outshine each other among themselves. So on the basis of how refined their understanding has become of the, of the ultimate reality. So this way of dividing yogis, one hand, and the others on the other hand, is much easier. And that's from the Top Ten Chodak's translation. Uh, Top Ten Chodak's, uh, Gishe Top Ten Chodak's. Did I say Top Ten Chodak? Not Ten Ten Chodak's, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, Geshe Top Ten Chodak's uh, in, uh, commentary. In Gyesabjais, he mixes it up. He says, he makes yogis and common people relative. Even among the common people, you would have yogis. Or even among the yogis, you would have common people. Something like that. It's little, little mixed. It's easier to understand this way. You kind of have yogis and common people defined. And within the yogis, you make a range of differences. Within the common people, you make a range of differences. Differences in terms of their take on the ultimate reality. So let's leave it there, <laughs> and then I'll I'll keep bringing up new things here and there. And there you have to be wary about it. I will not be bringing all of all at the same time. But yes, please, venerable Pandela. Keshela, could you please share a specific example ah. of how using Logic and reasoning help us understand the selflessness of a person and selflessness of, of, of phenomena yeah. conceptually. Yes. Thanks. Yes. The Among the many reasonings, uh, the reasoning of dependent origination is called the king of reasonings. So that helps in deconstructing our notion of a, a concrete, solidified identity. So when we project it to ourselves who we are, we we tend to see ourselves as concrete or something almost, I say something almost pointable, because this understanding can lead even is supposed to eventually lead to such a such a level of understanding that we would have difficulty even pinpointing something as something, because things aren't objectively that pinpointable. So, one way of understanding is things are dependently related, dependently related, be that on the ground of being totally dependent on causes and conditions. Nothing is independent in that. They are totally dependent on their causes and conditions, so dependence on the causes and conditions is thorough in the case of compounded phenomena in that everything that something is at a given moment is totally due to a previous moment of collection of things. It's almost like it's almost like that things do not have any say any say. On what they become, it's totally dictated, if you will, dictated or or uh, derived from things preceding it. So, in that sense, also, they do not have any intrinsic identity of their own. They are totally in the in the in in in, in text itself. It calls phenomena as churva, as magical. What do you call magical pardon? Magical illusions, magical, but not illusion, magical emanations. Yeah. Things are magical emanations. They do not they didn't come of their own. They do not have anything that they could their own. Everything about them is from something else. And they are here from the when we approach it from the causal point of view, there's something else, it's something that has already preceded it. It's no more there, but they are all that is responsible for who you are, what you are. Totally so. So that way we can rule out any we can poke through this projection of something having a projected, independent kind of a solid identity. Another and that that is the way of dealing with this topic in a temporal sense. How all something is is totally dependent on or something dependent on things that have preceded it, things that are no more there at that time, but who are totally responsible for it. The other one is not going into the sequence, not going into the temporal sense. Just looking at the thing here and now, if you look deeply, you do not find any concrete identity. It's all dependent on cause, dependent on parts. If you take the parts away, there is no solid. Thing to be found, so just there and here and there, it's totally, it's 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 a what do you call illusion? It's a mistaken notion that things have kind of a identity in and of itself, not dependent on its cause, on its parts. Apart from the parts, there is no identity of its own. That's one way of reconstructing this. Deconstructing, uh, this notion of a solid objective reality now further them further down deeper than that is to to see how the dependency even the dependency of things even at their time of existence without thinking of their past and future at their very given time their very existence, their very identity, is projected by mind. So here the the here the thing that they depend on shifts. Earlier we thought of causes and conditions that they depend on, and which is also true. And the other one is how in their in their very time they are thoroughly. Thoroughly again, thoroughly without any thing left out. Thoroughly dependent on their parts. Without the parts, there would be no identity. That's one way of projecting, uh, seeing through the mistaken notion of a concrete identity. Now the third one is a little difficult, and uh, and uh, even fully understanding it is not that. Uh, not considered to come forth uh, after having understood emptiness. Nonetheless, there the dependency, the thing that it depends is not only the causes and conditions preceding it, not only the parts that exist with it, but to be on, when, on which they are to- totally dependent, but also to a projecting mind. Projecting mind. So it depends not only on the parts, not only on the causes and conditions, because when we speak of parts and causes and conditions, we are still relying on things, outside things. Now we are bringing that shift of dependency on a projecting mind. Without the mind, it wouldn't be there. Now that would be a little difficult. To say. What? Without the mind, it would not be there? What does that mean? Does that mean in the way pras- that Chitramatras understand? The things are just... Uh, maturation of the latencies left from before, or in what ways? Now, not not that. It is not that way of dependency, because the Chitramatras position ultimately is ruled out. It's not even a factual thing in the eyes of the Prasangika. Many of the positions held by the lower tenors are factual, except they do not go far enough. But this one even fails to be factual, yet at the same time it has so much—what uh, do you call—to uh, offer in our dealing with afflictions. Uh, but so it is not that, yet at the same time it is dependent on the projecting mind. So, what does that mean? One has to—I mean, this will not be that apparent. Uh, but what does it mean is things—things things are. Dependently designated in relation in dependence on its basis of designation or in independence on its parts. To some extent, we saw how the thing depended on the parts, but now we are kind of expanding it further and saying, how come without its findability, without its findability among the parts? How is it, again, how it still functions as a thing, apart from the parts? And it's because of a projecting mind. So when we say projecting mind, what it should leave us with is things are, things, when we say they are dependent on projecting minds, what it should leave us with, the shock, is to be able to see that things do not exist from their sight. They exist only by virtue of being posited from here. So, to that extent, we have to pursue this understanding. And that is not that easy to, uh, it's just not too easy to even agree with first. Yes.
1: just wanted to clarify which tenet system you were talking about when you said, what I see is private and personal, Personal, like you can't see the pencil that I can see. Was that Chitta Mantra?
0: Yes, that's Chitta Mantra.
1: And why wouldn't it be the higher systems?
0: Oh, in higher systems, it is not... Uh, in, in what ways would it be higher system?
1: I, I think, actually, maybe the Sifatantraka, it's a little easier because they're saying there's something intrinsic, yeah. character of the thing, so we could all see that, maybe, and agree. Mm-hmm. But then when you talk about the prasangika, then yeah. why do we all agree?
0: <laughs> yeah, in in the case of the prasangika Madhimaka, the part about the personal and the private is not there. It's not that I project and you become what you become, because I project. Except you are a mere projection. But not, if you say, which projection, whose projection, that's again looking into an intrinsic projector. No, is it saying that you are because of my projection? No. But nonetheless, mere projection.
1: So then for the chidamatra, for that something to be private and personal, it has to be intrinsic. The, what it is from their perspective, or is it is it just the thing about the latencies that that refers to? So no,
0: something being private and and personal is because of a, a intrinsic intrinsically uh, in, intrinsically private and and personal mind that is making it happen. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I think we should stop here. I should learn a better way of asking for questions before it hits. <laughs> I'm
1: learning there. <laughs>